There we go. Yeah, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for the one who approaches God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So you've got to have faith. But what does that mean? Because you can have faith in, in all sorts of things. What do you have faith in? Like I had faith when I was teaching. I've got two kids who know how to ride a bike now. And when I started teaching them, of course they didn't know and it was hard. And they were, There were times when there were tears and they didn't want to keep going. But I knew that they would ride their bikes. I knew that they'd be able to take the training wheels off and do two wheels. I had faith in them. I, they'd never done it before, but I had this confidence that if they will continue to try and, and not give up, that they will get it. And at some point, as long as we keep practicing and practicing, that at one point it's just going to click and they're going to start riding. And sure enough, I didn't give up and, and I wouldn't let them give up. And so now two kids have the, no training wheels and they can ride their bikes on two wheels and they're really glad they can. They didn't want to at the first, but now they're really happy that we went through the trouble. So I had faith in them. Everybody has faith in something, in a number of things probably. It's funny how much faith we put in total strangers every time you get in a car and drive on the road. I mean, how many hundreds, thousands of people that you go by every day who could, if they wanted to, swerve in front of you and kill you. We put so much faith in these people. And they put so much faith in us when we get on the roads and we drive, believing that they won't crash into us. I have faith in the construction of this building, otherwise I wouldn't be standing in here preaching. I don't have any fear that it's just going to fall. Even though the wind's blowing really hard today, I have faith that it's going to hold up and, and that those of you who helped in the construction that did a good job and, and that it's going to stand for the rest of the, the Sunday and probably much, much longer. And this, I think probably the Hebrews, the, the beginning of chapter 11 helps to kind of narrow things down in, in the kind of faith that it's talking about. Of course, it mentions in 11.6 that it's meant talking about God, but it says in 11.1, it's kind of our Christian definition of faith. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Some translations say it's the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen or something along those lines in your Bibles. So what are we hoping for? And what is it that we do not see that this definition is talking about? It, well, of course, if you read the rest of the chapter in Hebrews 11, you can see that it's talking about faith in God. That we put a belief in God, even though you can't see God, that we still believe in Him. And none of us has ever seen Jesus because He was alive and, and died and resurrected and went up to heaven over 2,000 years ago. So we haven't seen Him. And yet... Our greatest hope is in Him. If you're a Christian, your, your, your biggest hope is in someone that you've never ever seen before. And a Christian is assured of God's grace and convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's not talking about just something you believe in as a, as a thing, but actually betting your life on Jesus. Not just that Jesus was a person who lived in history, because I mean, that's, there's so much evidence for that. You're kind of not very smart not to believe that Jesus was a real-life human being, but to believe that He's the Son of God and to bet your life on it is the kind of belief that it's talking about. So not just an intellectual belief. If you are assured and convinced 
that Jesus died and rose again and that we can receive eternal life by trusting in Him, then your life changes. It changes who you are and how you live. You do things that you wouldn't otherwise do because your belief is more than just a mental exercise. It's assurance and conviction that alters the course of your life. And so that's the kind of faith that we're talking about. You can have a faith that doesn't much matter to your life, that's more just a mental sort of thing. You, for some reason, there are people in the world today who believe that the world is flat. Flat earthers. They have faith that the world is not a, a globe. Don't ask me why, but they do. And, but it doesn't affect how they live. Like whether the world is flat or round on a day-to-day life basis, it doesn't. I mean, unless you work for NASA, who cares? I mean, if, if you're trying to you know, chart map directions or look over the horizon, then it might matter. But you know, if you're just somebody who has a regular job and you go to work every day and you go home and you do normal things, whether the world is flat or round or triangle or what, it really does not matter. So other than attending the, the, the annual Flat Earth Convention with all the other yahoos, the, you know, so what? If they believe the world is flat, it doesn't really matter to them. There's no, there's no investment in that. They don't, have the, you know, they don't have to put any trust in anything because their day-to-day life doesn't change. They live just like the rest of us who live in a round world. And they still work and they eat and they do everything else exactly the same. They put no real trust in a flat world because it's nothing more than an intellectual belief and it doesn't change anything in real life. The demons had that kind of a faith in Jesus. The demons knew who Jesus was. They believed that He really was the Son of God. As a matter of fact, they, they would declare it when, he, when they saw Him when He encountered the demons. They would say, that you are the Son of the Most High God. So it's like they had a better doctrinal understanding of who Jesus was than everybody else. So their, their faith, if you want to call it that, their belief in Jesus was very real. And, but at the same time, they, did, they had no interest in trusting Jesus. They had no interest in investing in the Son of God. They wanted no part of Him. They knew exactly who He was, but they, they wanted to be a part. And not so there's a difference between knowing who Jesus is and betting your life on him. Between this mental thing and the and trust. And so intellectual belief without any real faith and trust doesn't change how you live. The the kind of faith we're talking about when we're talking about having faith in God, like in the Hebrews eleven, it changes it it it, it affects how you make decisions, it changes how you think and who you are and what you do and the way you live your life because your belief affects real life. It's not just, oh sure, there was Jesus. It's, no, I live for Jesus. You might not see Him or have ever seen Him or understand how, how He does the things that He does, but you live out your faith because of trust. You have hope and assurance in things that you have not seen. There's evidence, but you still haven't seen Jesus Himself. For example, there have been a few Sunday mornings when I've come to church and had a cup of coffee. And I hate coffee. So why do I drink it? Well, because I believe in caffeine. And I stayed up too late sometimes. I'm trying to finish a sermon or get other things done. And I stayed up too late working the night before. And I have faith that if I drink that coffee, even though I don't like it, that it will give me a boost of energy. It helps to wake me up and 
and be a little more alive on a Sunday morning. And I can't see the caffeine. I I have a basic idea that it that interacts with your you know recept nerve receptors and stuff, but I really don't understand biologically how it works to to help your body wake up. But I trust in it enough that I am willing to ignore the the taste and have a cup to wake me up every once in a while. Of course, I, I mask the flavor with milk and sugar and, and usually put some cold water or some ice so that I can just chug it down and not have to taste too long. But I, I have faith that the caffeine will give me a boost. I trust in it, that it's there. And I choose to drink the coffee because of that. So that's a, that's a kind of faith that I believe this will work and that's why I drink it. And so it changes my behavior. I, I do something because of my faith. Another example is flying. How many of you ever flown on a plane? Do you know how planes work? Like how aerodynamics lift a plane off the ground? I love flying. I, I mean, I've always enjoyed it. But have you ever really stopped to think why anybody in their right mind would get into a metal tube that weighs over 100,000 pounds and trust it to carry them up five miles in the sky where the air is so thin that you can't breathe? And thousands of people do it every day. They have no idea how aerodynamics gets that thing off the ground. And yet they trust that those wings will do whatever magic that they do to pick this giant piece of steel and, and fuel off the ground. And an Airbus, one of the biggest planes for passengers right now is an Airbus 380. It weighs over 600,000 pounds. It's well over a half a million pounds. And it's, it, that's 20 semi-trucks with their trailers floating in the air like it's a helium balloon. The paint on it alone weighs a ton, literally a ton of paint on the thing. How many of you can explain how that works? How the physics of, of aerodynamics lifts a, a half a million pound machine off the ground as, as if it's light as, as a bird. And yet we willingly climb on board anyway and put our we believe that that plane is going to fly in spite of how heavy it is. We all know how that it's, it's this big heavy thing, but we put our trust in the, and, that, and that our trust affects how we live. That we'll get on that and trust that the pilot's going to do his job and that that plane's going to work. In fact, the stronger your faith is, and some people have stronger faith in planes than others, the stronger your faith in that plane is, the more enjoyment you're going to have on the flight the less you're going to worry. There are some people that they don't have very strong, they have enough faith, they have a mustard seed of faith and it gets them on the plane. But when they're on there, they're gripping the rails or they're squeezing their neighbor's hand even if they don't know them. And they're saying, God, please get us through this flight. And then there's the others who they've flown a million times and it's no big deal. And they, they're looking out and watching everything shrink down below and having a good time. The turbulence shakes and they're making jokes about how the wing's going to fall off and snoozing and laughing at the in-flight movie because they have total faith in the plane and so they enjoy the ride and it's a lot of fun. So if you have a strong faith, you're going to not worry so much and if you have a weak faith, you still might get on board but you're, you're going to have a lot more trouble dur during the turbulence. And it's kind of the same way with the Christian faith if you think about it. The more you trust Jesus, the, more, the stronger your faith is, the more peace you have. When the turbulence hits life, and it always does, the more joy you have in spite of the circumstances. Because you know that God's going to see you through. You know that even if I die, I'm still okay in Jesus. And, and 
And so the, the, the stronger your faith, the more joy you will derive out of a relationship with Jesus. But even if you have enough faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, that'll still get you through. I'll still get you from point A to point B if you trust in me. As a matter of fact, you can move mountains with that much faith. But if you're, So any amount of faith, of true faith in Jesus, will change your life. Just like the plane carries anybody who's willing to get on board if they've got enough faith to get on board, that plane will take them where they need to go. So if you really have faith in Jesus, He'll get you where you need to go. Even if, they're, you know, even if you're squeezing the hands, you know, I trust you, Jesus, but I can't let go of these rails. And you might be you know, stressed out once in a while and, and have some troubles as you go through life and the difficulties, but He'll still get you there. And that's why when we, we come to church, I mean, that's why Jesus formed the church, so that we can squeeze each other's hands when turbulence hit. And then, and we can make sure I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, sister. Let's pray together. Let's, you know, we're going to make it. Hang on. Don't give up. Jesus will get us through when life gets bumpy. But the deeper your faith goes, the more your relationship with God grows, the more peace you have, even when life gets bumpy and turbulent. So the stronger your faith is, the more enjoyment you'll get out of life. And Galatians 2:20 says, "I have been crucified with Christ." And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So now, the life I live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God the, who loved me and gave Himself for me. So, and it's kind of like, I don't have to worry anymore. I'm trusting in Jesus, and He's got this. And things might go up and down, but I know that He's going to get me through. And Jesus cares about how much faith we have. He talks about it all the time. How many times does Jesus, Jesus comment on the faith of the people that he's talking to. Oh, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? You need more faith. Your faith has made you well for the people he healed. It's because of your faith that we were able to do this. Or all things are possible if you believe. Jesus was always commenting about how much or how little faith people have. And why? Because he wants our lives to be rich and full and blessed. He wants us to have the peace and the joy of living through in a world that's you know got lots of problems but still having his peace and still knowing his joy through regardless of the circumstances and he said in this world you will have trouble and he knows that but if we have faith to trust in the one who has overcome the world then we don't have to fear as we go through life we can have peace in him and our scripture today it's an example of faith and it really impresses jesus the faith that this the centurion had. Well, I'll start with uh, Matthew 8 at verse um, 5. It says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible anguish. Now, a lot of you probably already know what a centurion is. It's a, a Roman soldier. He's an officer who has been in, put in charge of a large group of soldiers. And the, the word centurion means a hundred so usually around a hundred soldiers is the same place where we get the word century for a hundred years so centurion is talking about a guy who's in charge of a group of around a hundred soldiers so you can think of this roman soldier kind of like a, a company commander so he's he's got some power he's got some um, responsibility over a group of men and not only that this soldier we need to remember represents the enemy because rome has conquered Israel 
And the, and the Jews don't want the Romans around. They would rather live their own life and not have the Romans over them. The Jews hated the Romans. And the Romans, uh, you know, not only were they a conquering army who came in and, and subjugated Jerusalem, but the Romans were a bunch of unclean Gentiles who were now wandering around and, and, and pushing their own way and oppressing and threatening the, the Jews' worship and their way of life. And the, the Jews were forced to pay taxes to Rome. So they actually had to pay for their own oppression, which made them very mad. And we talked a while back about how if a Roman soldier tells a Jew to carry their stuff, hey, I want you to pick up my stuff and carry it for me, the law required you to do it at least a mile. And Jesus, that's why Jesus said, if you, they tell you to carry their stuff, carry it for two miles. And show them love. Show your enemy love. So they did not like the, Rome, the, the Romans. The Jews did not like the Romans. And many of the Israelites were hoping that when the Messiah came, that he would lead a revolution against Rome. That he would be a, like a military leader and be able to push back all their enemies and give them their political and their religious freedom back so they wouldn't have to worry about people like the Romans pushing them around. But needless to say, there were not very good relations between the Romans and the Jews. So it's kind of a big deal that this centurion was willing to walk up and walk through this crowd of Jews around Jesus and come to Jesus for help. Because not only was this Roman basically turning his back on Rome and, and, and committing treason against his own people, he was debasing himself and his ranking as an officer to stoop down, to lower himself to the level of a Jewish commoner and look for his help. Because he had power and authority over all these Jews. He could tell them whatever he wanted them to do. And yet he was humbling himself and approaching Jesus looking for help. And he calls Jesus Lord. He, he, I mean, we don't use the word Lord, but he, he was saying, you have authority over me. Legally, the centurion had all the authority over Jesus and, and everybody else in the crowd, but he recognized the truth that Jesus actually had authority over him in spite of his military rank. And not only that, he trusted that Jesus had authority over the physical health of his servant that he'd heard the stories of what Jesus could do, or maybe he'd seen something, I don't know. But somehow, he knew that Jesus had authority beyond the, the, the physical world, beyond his, the, the military and political. and that Jesus had somehow authority supernaturally. And his faith was enough, the Roman centurion's faith was enough that he was willing to humble himself and put his reputation on the line to go and seek help from Jesus. So this is a big deal. Just the fact that he's walking up and asking for help is... is Kind of a shocker to the biblical, you know, the people who would read the Bible or hear these stories at the time that this was happening, and all the people standing around watching, of course. And I think that that's it's a good challenge for us to remember too. Are we, are you, willing to put your reputation on the line to seek help from Jesus when the rest of the world might look at you as a traitor or or a religious nutcase of some kind? That you know, there's, you're just a, one of those Christians, Jesus people, and they call you names. Are you willing to put your reputation on the line to seek help from Jesus? Are you willing to let other your your friends think of you as as a religious nut or or that there's something wrong with you to call you names and dislike you because you call Jesus Lord and you trust Him enough to obey Him and not 
go along with what the rest of the world says. So I think that's a good challenge for us to see what this soldier did and, and do the same. And you know, it's really interesting. I think the centurion doesn't even get a chance to ask for help. He just comes up and he kind of shares the story of his servant with Jesus. Says, my servant is, is not well. He's, he's paralyzed at home. And Jesus doesn't say, well, what do you want from me? And he doesn't say, well, w- would you like my help? He just says in verse 7, Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. So the Roman soldier, he doesn't even get a chance to ask for help. He says, listen, Lord, my servant is at home sick. And Jesus says, I'll come help him. Like right then and there. And, and Jesus is like that. I think when anybody, and it seems like every time in Scripture, when anybody comes to him in openness and humility and is willing to just you know, put their heart and their life on the line and look, come to Jesus for help, he wants to help, and he, and he helps right away. Like there are some people that they're not asking for help. Like if you remember the, the guy who was by the, the pool of Bethsaida, he wasn't asking for help. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And so he kind of, kind of puts them through a little bit more work to get there. But people who come with complete openness and honesty, and they're like, I'm at the end of my rope. I've got nothing left. And Jesus helps those people the quickest, it seems. And that's what the soldier did. And... And just like the story of the leper last week, Jesus, if you're willing, I know you can help. He says, of course I'm willing. And he helps the guy. And, and he has the same willingness to, and desire to help everybody. I truly believe that. That if you come to Jesus in faith and humility and complete openness, that I need you, Jesus, and I can't do anything without you. If you're open and honest about your sin and you seek the Lord, that He'll give you His grace. In a heartbeat. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm lost without you. I'm, I'm stuck in my sin. There's nothing I can do. I, I, please help me. That He helps you immediately. He doesn't make you fill out paperwork. He doesn't make you go through an application process. He just reaches out and says, I will heal you. And all you have to do is ask. Because He wants to share His life with you. He gave His life so that we could have a relationship with Him. God doesn't want anybody to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's His desire. And so He's looking for people who are willing to just openly and honestly come to Him in humility and say, I need you. And I think the centurion is, a, is kind of a bit surprised by how willing Jesus is. That He's, he's a little bit shocked that you know because He's an outsider and He's a Gentile and He's the Roman enemy. And yet, here's this important man to all this crowd is willing to, to come and help Him. And... I think he probably knew that it wasn't exactly kosher for a Jew to go visit the enemy's home. And, and also he recognizes that whatever authority Jesus has isn't limited to proximity. That he sees something in Jesus. He, he understands something. And, and he's obviously heard some of the stories that Jesus has healed people or, or maybe he's actually seen, the, you know, saw the leper get healed or something. But he's heard about Jesus. And... He, you know, he obviously he's a real life human being, so he knows if Jesus was just like a doctor, because the Romans had doctors, they weren't very well educated in medicine, but everybody knew what doctors were. There were physicians who did their best to try to heal people with whatever concoctions they could come up with. So if he just wanted a doctor, he could have got a Roman doctor or, or whatever. And if he thought Jesus was just like a typical physical healer, then of course you'd have to come and check out your patient and give an examination and come up with some sort of drugs or shamans or whatever that you do to fix them 
But since his authority was this supernatural ability to, to heal diseases, to give sight to the blind, to, to make the, lep- the leprous skin healthy again, and things like that, he trusted that Jesus simply had to give the command and the health of his servant would obey. And he, he somehow implicitly understood this idea. And so in verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come to my house under my roof. Instead, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. So the Romans thinking in terms of, I am a commander. When I tell people to jump, they say how high. And, and again, the, the Roman centurion calls Jesus Lord a second time. And he submits his own power and authority to Jesus. And he's saying, you have command over me. And you have command over my servant's health. And, and he says, and besides, I'm not good enough for you to lower yourself to have to walk into my Gentile home. Because yeah, I know I'm a Roman and that would not be good. Besides, I know you. all you have to do is say the word. You give the command, considering my servant, and because you have the power and authority that you have, whatever you say will happen simply because you ordered it. The same way I ordered my soldiers, I know you can order the health of my servant and it'll happen. And you can see how much trust he has in what Jesus can do. That he just understands this. And, and you remember when Lazarus had died and Jesus went to visit Mary and Martha and and Mary said, Jesus, if you had only been here, Lazarus would not have died. If you had been here, he got sick and you could have just healed him. And so she had faith. She believed that Jesus had power to heal. She understood that. But how much more faith does a centurion have who says, you don't even have to get up, Jesus. You, You don't have to move. All you have to do is give the word and I know he'll be healed from however many miles away my house is. You just say it, and I know it'll happen. Like, that's more faith than Jesus has ever seen before. And, and one of the things that you, you learn in the military, you know, like I was in the service, and some of you were, you learn about, you know, rank and, and who you're supposed to salute and when. And one of the things they told us is you salute the rank, not the man. Because there might be a high-ranking enlisted man who has been in service for a couple of decades, but he's still enlisted. And so he's required to salute the greenhorn officer who has one month of, of service. And it's about a rank. And so you salute the rank, not necessarily the man. And it doesn't mean that the enlisted man is less important or that the officer is more important. It's just how rank works and how authority works. I even remember a time I was stationed in Jacksonville, Florida. I had been in for a couple of years. And this boot ensign, fresh out of officer training saluted me because they they're you know when you're in training you salute everything and so he's just it's a reaction and so he comes to me and he salutes me because i'm supposed to salute first the enlisted always salutes first and then the officer salutes back and then you let yours down and he came up and he saluted me and i said carry on <laughs> so it's kind of funny but <laughs> if you you know it's it's the kind of thing that you, it's all about authority. And, it's a, and he's not more important than me, and I'm not more important than him. So when the Bible talks about us submitting, and it does, you know, we're supposed to submit to authority, and it's not talking about you know, groveling or having less importance or being of less value or anything else. 
Like my wife is not less important than I am or have less value in our household. But she submits to me. When it comes to finances, I'm in charge. And when it comes to picking out clothes for church, she's in charge and I submit to her. So, and it doesn't mean one or the other is more important or less important. We just understand that that's how authority works. And if you submit to your boss at work, it doesn't mean that you are less important as a human being. It, if, or you might be the boss at work, and it doesn't mean you're more important. The, the, you, know, you, you value your workers the same as you, as, as, as equal human beings. It simply means we recognize authority. And, and for long as I have been alive, it seems like about half the country likes whoever's the president, and the other half doesn't like whoever's president. And for the most part, in spite of that like and dislike, the whole country still respects the office. For the most part, there are a few people that don't. But we submit to that authority, even when we're not totally happy about it, because we value living as a civil society rather than a chaotic anarchy. And so we recognize the office, whether or not we like the person who holds it. And, and we, we also know the president is just an ordinary human being with, with good qualities and bad qualities and, and problems and temptations. And that's why we like to switch them out every four or eight years because we know they're just ordinary human beings and power can corrupt. And, and we know that we, have to, we want to submit to the authority of the government because we want a civil society and not an a anarchy. And at the same time, we don't want to give them more power than we have to. And so we switch people out. We switch our Congress people out and replace them with new ones, or we, we ought to more often. But like all human beings, we know that they can be corrupted and that they can abuse their authority over us, and we don't want them to do that. And so we can vote people in and out, and, and we do that. So the, the, there is one authority that we should fully submit to, that we should trust completely, and that's God. Because God is the only authority who is fully and forever good, who cannot be corrupted and will never go bad or take advantage of his power. He, he cannot and will not abuse his authority because he's, he's the epitome of good. He wouldn't need to abuse his power anyway. I mean, he could do whatever he wants. It's not like he, you know, he already has full power and he doesn't have physical needs like you and I that he needs to try to fulfill. He doesn't need to prove anything. And, and even if he needed anything, he simply could speak it into existence. He spoke the whole universe into existence. So if there's anything he wanted, he could just make it. So it's not like he has to abuse his power to get anything. So we don't have to worry about God. You know, he's the, he's, the old, he's the one ruler and one judge that we can trust absolutely. And he gives us the freedom in his authority. He gives us the freedom to choose whether or not we want to submit to his authority. If he wanted to, he could force us all to do whatever he wanted us to do. But he doesn't. He says, you make your choice. I'm gonna, it's your life. I'm going to let you choose what direction you're going to take it. In fact, when you think about sin, when you basically boil it down to its root essence, sin is simply a rejection of God's authority over our lives. That we say, God, I don't want what you're saying. I, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And, and we can choose to go our own way and reject God, and it separates us from Him. And, he, and he, he gives us that freedom that we can say, choose. I, we can say, God, I don't want you. And we can go our own direction. And that's what sin is. 
where you're saying, God, I'm going to choose, I'm going to make my own way. People don't go to hell because of bad behavior. People, they go to hell because they reject God and they refuse to submit to His authority. And He allows them to go in their own direction and to be cut off. And they decide to come up with their own definitions of right and wrong. People do that all the time in the world today. And they decide, I'm going to make up my own right and wrong. I'm going to make up my own gods. And, 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 peop- and He allows them to do that. But it's kind of as pointless and stupid as trying to use your own key to unlock somebody else's house. Like it, it just doesn't work that way. And that's why you die. That's why you, you, you can't survive that way. And, and you, you, I mean, you could take a piece of paper with a green marker and you could write you know, a $1 million bill on it, but you can't go and spend it at the store. It just doesn't work that way. So you can either submit to God's authority and get the blessings and get the life and get the peace and get the joy, or you choose your own way and you cut yourself off from life and wisdom, and love. And that's why the world is falling apart. Because so many people have cut themselves off from life, and wisdom, and love, and joy, and peace, and all those good, wonderful blessings. But the soldier was wise enough to recognize who had the true authority over his servant's health. He could have gone to the Roman doctors and tried like everybody else, but he said, the only one who can really do anything real about my servant's problem is Jesus. And and it's the same person who we read about last week who had authority over the leper's skin. And uh, we know he had authority over his dead friend Lazarus. And he, has a, he can command the wind and the waves to obey him. It's like Jesus has full authority. And the, and the soldier recognizes that. And in verse 10, he says, when Jesus heard what the, when the soldier said, you don't have to do it, you don't have to come to my house. You just give the word and he'll be healed. And verse 10 says, when the Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith in anyone in Israel. And this kind of is impressive to me that Jesus was amazed that this soldier did something that blew Jesus away. I mean, this is someone who can control the weather, who can speak the Word and heal the sick and give sight to the blind and and fix broken bodies and bring the dead back to life. And Jesus was truly impressed by the centurion's faith. And it's kind of funny when you think about he's saying this in front of all the Jews who are standing around, God's chosen people, and listening to this conversation, and especially Jesus' disciples, because his disciples are with him, and, and you know, we follow Jesus, we've dedicated our life to you, and Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this guy. And they're like, wait a second, Jesus, we're giving our lives to you. We're following you here. And Jesus had just told them all that their faith kind of stinks compared to this Roman soldier. You know, thanks for following me, but man, you guys are nothing like this guy. And they're saying, this is the the enemy. It's a Roman. Can you imagine? I mean, how many people do you think got offended and ticked off by what Jesus said? And I'm sure Jesus understands that. So it's not only a praise of this officer's faith, it's also a wake up and smell the coffee moment for all the people standing around listening. Are you guys paying attention? Did you guys see what this Roman soldier said? Because he has shown more faith now than I've seen in any of you, in anybody in Israel. This soldier, this Roman, has more faith than that. And in verse 11, he says, I tell you, 
Many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, that means the people of Israel, the children of the kingdom of Israel, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is telling His own people, His brothers and sisters, and the people following around, listen, people, there's going to be outsiders, Gentiles, strangers, from all over the world who are going to be coming and choosing God and become like His children. Because it has nothing to do with your bloodline. You know, you're saying that we're the Israelites, we're God's chosen people, but it, it, that's not what helps you. You can't just claim to, to belong to a certain family and think that you're going to be okay. Just because you're a Jew doesn't make you one of God's people. If you remember the story when he was in his house and his mother and brother came and, and the crowd was so full and they said, your, your mother and brothers are out. said, no, my mother and brothers are the ones who obey me. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of God's family, if you want to be part of God's children, you have to submit to Him. You have to put your faith and your trust in Him. The Gentile soldier had real faith. He submitted and trusted. And, and, but so many of my own people, Jesus is saying, are, are, they refuse to submit to my authority. And because of that, they can't belong to God. It's not about your race. It's not about your family line. It's, it's not about a title that you give yourself. It's about actually trusting and obeying God and making the choice to submit to His authority. And that's true of us today. Anybody can call themselves a Christian. Anybody can go to church and, and sing the songs and do the good deeds and all that jazz. But if you don't submit to Jesus, if you don't trust in His authority, only the people... That you can... Only people who can have a real relationship with Jesus are the ones who choose to trust in Him. And if you don't choose to trust in Jesus and submit to His authority, you can't have a relationship with Him. You can't get into your neighbor's house with your own key. You can't draw your own currency and spend it in the store. You can't come up with your own religion and your own God and your own definition for good and evil. You have to submit to what God says. And if you don't choose to submit to what God says, you can't have a relationship with Him. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Being born to a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave so that your sins might be forgiven through His gift of grace, that's what makes you a real Christian and nothing else. Just like the Roman, we have to recognize when it comes down to it, there is nothing that we can do to solve the problem that we have. For the centurion, it was a sick servant. I can't make my servant well. Only Jesus can do that. For you and me, it's slavery to sin and death. I cannot escape death. Once you're dead, you can't do anything. If they bury you in the ground, you can't come back to life and dig yourself out. When you sin and turn your back on God and choose not your will, but my will, you cut yourself off and you die spiritually. And there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself from that. There's nothing you can do to wash your own sins off. You cannot do that. You're dead in sins. You're a slave to sin and death. And we have to recognize that when it comes down to it, we are in absolute dependence on Jesus for His help. We cannot find real life without Him. And so we have to go to Jesus. I'm stuck 
God, and I can't do this without you. Please forgive me. Please help me. I, I want your light. I'm, I'm willing now. <laughs> I've seen what it works like in my own authority. doesn't work. I want your authority. And, and if we do that, if we humble ourselves and submit our will to his authority, then Jesus has the exact same willing and desire to help us as he did the soldier. Um, I'll come to your house. You don't even come to my house. You just say the word, Jesus. Well, whatever needs to be done, it's done. In verse 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go, just as you believe, it will be done for you. And the servant was healed at that hour. If you submit to Jesus, you come to him in complete openness and humility and say, I give it up. I'm, I'm yours, Jesus. He says, you're healed. You're forgiven. I give you a new life. I will live with you. I'll be with you every step of the way. And we'll be family and we'll have a relationship. You just have to choose that. You have to decide for yourself. So how's your relationship with Jesus today? How much authority does he have in your life? Are you choosing to go your own way? Or are you choosing to obey Jesus because you trust in him? Do you define right and wrong by your own definition, your own standard, or are you living in submission and obedience to God because you really believe in Him and you trust in Him enough to do what He says? Do you need Jesus to heal your heart today? Because He's willing. Do you want a relationship with the loving Lord? Because He wants that. He wants it. All you have to do is decide that you're willing to accept His authority over your own, and you'll find out just how willing God is to help you. None of us are worthy of having Jesus come to our house because we turned against him in our own sin and we decided we wanted to do our own way and separate ourselves against. So we're not worthy, but he has given his life as a sacrifice to make us holy because he wants to come to your house and he wants to live with you and he wants to have a relationship with you that lasts forever and ever. Will you trust him enough to submit yourself to him and ask for his help? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you in spite of us, are willing to love us and help us and that you desire for us to be healed and have that relationship. And you're just sitting around waiting for us to ask. So God, I pray that no one would leave here today without asking for that, without submitting to you and looking for your help. And God, I pray that we could all put so much faith and trust in you that we have perfect peace in you. That regardless of what life throws at us and how much turbulence we face in our day-to-day -day lives, that we can have so much faith that we can ride along with you in peace and joy and, and trust that you're going to get us to where we need to go because you are so good and that you have total authority and power to do whatever needs to be done. Thank you, Jesus, for all your love. In your name we pray. Amen.